morning, everybody. Welcome back to Leviticus class. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> We're going to be going to Leviticus chapter 24. If you want to join me in your Bibles. And we're going to try to be done by 10, because we, a little after 10, choir people, music people are coming in. Yeah, today is the day of multiple extra special things. Choir, orchestra, fellowship meal, which means I need to be on time. Yep, communion. Leviticus 24 have titled the, the message for this chapter, God's provision to be holy in community. As we talked about last week, the goal, goal of holiness is union and communion with God. You know, the, goal, the goal of being made holy is to dwell in God's presence and to be with him and walk with him. And with the way that the book of Leviticus, how it works, chapters 23 to 25 are all linked together, revealing God's plan of redemption and rest for both land and man for all time. So you remember last week in chapter 23, we talked about how time is to be treated as holy because it reveals God's plan for holiness through it. And now today we're looking at chapter 24, how to see with God's plan in time that he wants to make a holy community, a holy fellowship of people dwelling in his light by his bread, honoring his name according to his law. And next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the last part of this section in which we see how this all connects to the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee and God's ultimate redemption of land and man. But here we're looking at not only the central point of these three chapters, but a central point in Leviticus, which is, it's about you know, God's people who he's redeemed ascending to his mountain to have fellowship with him. It's about them going back to Eden or the, in another sense, you know, the, the whole world becoming Eden, which is what the tabernacle pictured, which it was more than just a picture of Eden. It was a picture of the whole cosmos or the whole universe where God would be the light of the whole place and he would be the bread who provided the fellowship that would be had around his table, the Lord's table. But while some receive the provision to get into that fellowship, there are some who refuse the light because they love the darkness. And for those, they will receive retribution, is what we see toward the end of this chapter. So God's provision to be holy in community are these things that I've put in rectangles here. It's light, bread, his name, and his law, and we're going to start with looking at how God's provision to be holiness community is a, it's a light to 
our path. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 together here. The word of God reads, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they bring to you clear oil from beaten olives for the light to make a lamp burn continually. Outside the veil of testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall keep it in order from evening to morning before Yahweh continually. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. He shall keep the lamp in order on the pure gold lampstand before Yahweh continually. So as we consider this, continue to consider these things, let's pray together. Our gracious Lord, you are our light and our salvation, and your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray it would be so now and to teach us and to guide us in your truth and to sanctify us by your word, which is truth, as we fellowship in you in the light of your presence. Amen. The oil here that would fuel the lamp was what would fuel the illuminating the illumination of access to God. You remember that's what the tabernacle was. It was the place where you could see the reflection of God's glory on all the gold stuff. As gold was to be that reflective thing that reflected God's image back to him and everything and the tabernacle was covered in gold. And this oil that was the, the fuel to the light, it ends up symbolizing God's presence through his spirit. And that's just something to remember for later. This is how it develops in scripture is that the Holy Spirit gets linked and symboled by oil early on. So you can just store that away. It'll make sense of a lot of Bible passages later as you keep reading. The light illuminates the way to God, and we see how other biblical authors interpreted the light this way. One example is Psalm 27.1, which reads, Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the strong defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Or another verse that you're maybe more familiar with is Psalm 119.105. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And as scripture develops, we see these things were all teaching Israel about Yahweh being these things for them. These were teaching tools in the teaching model of the tabernacle worship, which ultimately pointed to Jesus, who is Yahweh, who is the light, who is the word. And you see this if you turn over to John chapter 1 in your Bible. If you want to flip over there while you're simultaneously trying to take notes on all of this. <laughs> you need to like team up with somebody and sit next to them. One of them will be the Bible person and another will be the note person. and You can work together. John chapter 1, you see where Yahweh, light, and word is all tied together in the person of Jesus. It reads, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the beginning, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. So you see, Jesus is the light. He lights the way to access to God and he is also the way. He doesn't only light the way, but is the way. And you read back in Isaiah how he talks about this light to the nations and he calls the Messiah Israel. Like, why are you calling this guy Israel? I thought this, this nation, these people are Israel. Well, that's true, but he's the substitute for Israel and he's the light to the nations that they were supposed to be. So you see, he comes and he fulfills what they were commanded to do in their place to be their substitute obedience. And when he comes, he also is a light to the Gentiles. And so that salvation that Israel was to be a testimony of to others, Jesus does that for them in their place, being the perfect Israel and extending that salvation to the nations, which then all of those people get lit up as lights. Where Jesus taught in Matthew 5, he said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And later on in 1 John chapter 1, he says, this is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And you see that God being light, he brings us into the fellowship of light. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, which you can hear so many things from the tabernacle worship that's all tied together in that. And so Jesus makes us individual lights which reflect his light, and he places us together in fellowship as a lampstand, because you remember the lampstand didn't just have one little light on it. There were multiple lights on it. And you might recall how in Revelation chapter 1, the way that the church is referred to is a lampstand. There's a bunch of lights. So it's like, well, that kind of opens up understanding what Jesus said about not hiding your light under a basket. You can't just stay at home apart from the lampstand and truly shine the light of Christ. You need the community and the fellowship of the saints to be the light and lampstand together that God calls us to be. And as we read, this was a gold lampstand. You know, the point, it's pointing back to that gold in Eden. You know, the gold in that land was good because it was totally pure and it reflected back God's glory and likeness back to him. And so the concept of gold as we've discussed back in uh, Exodus class is how it, it's the reflection of the image of God. It communicates the purity of his being. And this lampstand was the light to the way 
to God's truth and the life. You see all of those concepts pulled together and it was to be upheld and lit up continually. And we uphold the light of Christ in the church. And we do this in a couple of different ways. One is by our love for one another. Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you yeah, if you love one another. And that gets tied into what we see here in this worship with the priest was, you know, these guys didn't have an inheritance. They were dependent on the other worshipers bringing their income to them so that they would have a portion among the people. So in a, a more general way, instead of just looking at the bread and the food that was brought to them, it was the idea of income. You know, you had... The bills had to be paid so the lights could be on in the tabernacle. You could think of it like that. And it's the same with you know, our worship here today. We, ha- we have to, to pay the bills so the lights can be on. You know, we have to give of our, our income so that we can have this place to worship the Lord together. And that's how we express our, our love for God and our relationship to, to one another. That's not just uh, something that we talk about, but... Its reality is shown in how we live and contribute to the worship that we have with one another. Secondly, by, and I've already made this point, but uh, a light isn't hinder, you know, hidden under a basket separated from fellowship, but it's on the lampstand of the church. This, this is where we display our good works. We do that together in fellowship to collectively glorify God. The next thing we see in chapter 24 here is God's provision to be holy in his community is by the the bread that he provides. We see this in verses 5 to 9, and we'll read those together. It says, Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake, and you shall set them in two rows, six to a row on the pure gold table before Yahweh, and you shall put pure frankincense on each row that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to Yahweh. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before Yahweh continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him. From the offerings to Yahweh by fire, his portion forever. Here you hear that word pure restated as a reminder of the pure fellowship that we're to have with Holy God and a reminder of the burnt offering, which was an offering of devotion to God to show your thanks to him for what he had provided and to express your devotion to him, that you, you want to be like that burnt offering, your, your whole life spent being burned unto his glory in its entirety. And this bread that we read of here was previously referred to in Exodus 25 as the bread of presence. Which you can remember what these Israelites had lived through, the the God who was present with them gave them bread from heaven. 
And he gives them a memorial of that, which is why there's 12 loaves to, to remind the 12 tribes of Israel that he had provided for them just as he had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He had built this nation for pure, fully devoted fellowship to him. And this, the bread of presence, as they would call it, would remind them of God's salvation. It would remind them of those things in the past, like providing bread from heaven. It would remind them that they always had food in the wilderness, that their clothing never wore out, that they never had any reason to be discontent with the food and clothing that God had given them. And as scripture goes on, we read about how Jesus is the bread of life, as he said in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven. They were still confused about that even in his day. He says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So you see, Jesus is the light that gives life and also the bread that gives life to the world. Now, everything is about his name and who he is and his work in the world. Which brings us to the third point in this chapter that how God provides that we be holy in community is by honoring his name in word and deed. If you look at verses 10 and 12, you'll see somebody who didn't do that. 2410, now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp and the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. Why do you think it mentions that his father was an Egyptian. Just an incidental detail, red flag. Something went wrong here. <laughs> where, did, where did this influence come into uh, this boy's life? And why is there an emphasis on the Israelite woman and the son of the Israelite woman? This was an Israelite woman. <laughs> This is what her name was, and this is what tribe of Israel she was from. The tribe of Dan, which means judgment, which Dan kind of has a bad history. This text comes as a, an interruption, and there's this great expression and instruction of all these festivals that God has given and to remind them of all these great truths of how he's going to redeem a people for himself throughout history and their celebration of the Sabbath. And then there's this guy. It's like, why did this happen? But this story, it's kind of like other stories we've read. Like the Ten Commandments are given. Like this is awesome. And people say, let's build a molten calf to celebrate. And 
This also reminds us of a more recent event to this, which is Nadab and Abihu, who they interrupted the grand opening of the tabernacle worship by profaning the name of the one who said, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be glorified. So in something of a subtle way, Moses is writing and wanting you to remember that. He says, look, look at what's happening here and how God will be treated as holy, but also remember that we need to be able to distinguish between the holy and the profane, the clean and the unclean. Now we know that back in the ten words or commandments, the third one was to not take the Lord's name in vain, to not profane it, which we had talked about how grammatically that connects into commandments six through nine. You know, it wasn't just, you didn't just take his name in vain by how you spoke. It wasn't just using his name in a way that treated it as ordinary or a curse word, but it had to deal with how you lived your life as well. As Exodus 20, verse 7 reads, You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This boy here, we see how he, he blasphemed and cursed. You know, these actions are paired together. He blasphemed with his life and he cursed with his mouth. You know, he was living contrary to God's standard and not speaking about him. He was taking his name lightly. And so just like the molten calf incident, just like Nadab and Abihu, this comes as a warning to us in the midst of God expressing his great holiness. He gives a warning against unholiness, but also a, a call to make just judgment. What you see you know, the priesthood was learning, we have to be able to discern these sort of situations and what's going to honor the Lord by the standard of his law. And so verse 12 says they, they put this boy in custody so that the command of Yahweh might be made clear to them. This is very wise. They don't think, well, it seems right in our eyes to address the situation this way. Like, well, we remember... When the Israelites did it their way with the molten calf, we remember when Nadab and Abihu did it their way. Maybe they were listening too much Frank Sinatra or something. But we're not going to do it our way. We're going to do it Yahweh's way. We need to think about the law and how we're going to apply it in this situation because we don't want to curse the name of Yahweh and how we make the decision. We want to do what he has commanded us to do. And... This last section of the book ties in understanding God's law and applying it correctly within this national government of Israel. And we see that picking up in verse 13, if you want to join me there. 24, 13. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp. And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. And you shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. 
all the congregation shall certainly stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. If a man strikes down the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. And the one who strikes down the life of an animal shall make restitution for it, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who strikes down an animal shall make restitution for it, but the one who strikes down a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard of judgment for you. It shall be for the sojourner as well as the native. For I am Yahweh your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp, and they stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. In this section, you can hear the, the connections to the Day of Atonements. And this was an atonement for the people to purge out the sin that was among them so it wouldn't continue to have influence among them. You can hear how God's law instructed them pertaining to that Day of Atonements within chapter 16. And you hear echoes of the scapegoat, except this isn't the high priest mediating one's sins on the head of the get-out goat, as we've talked about it. But this shows this is what happens when the high priest doesn't provide a substitute for you. You know, the hands of God's judgment comes on your head, and you bear your sin. And in this way, it taught people about God's holiness as they purged out this boy like they would purge out the get-out goat. And you can see how God's laws, we've talked about it, it's instructive. You know, it's teaching them about God's holiness. It's teaching them values. As I've said in the past, law, laws teach values. So what's being taught here is a value to them. Well, Yahweh's name is so valuable that to blaspheme and to curse it is worthy of death. Now, this is how serious they were to take the third commandment. And this was to teach them the fear of God, which the way that we apply the, the fear of God is by forsaking sin and following Him. That's how we live out fearing God, by forsaking sin and following Him or die. So where Nadab and Abihu, that event taught holiness among the priesthood so that they would learn discernment. The event with the blaspheming boy teaches that this holiness and discernment isn't just for the priest, it's for the whole community, it's for everybody. Everybody needs to be able to discern these things and live by these things. And this is also in a way, a testimony of the hope that the tabernacle worship set forward, looking forward to the tabernacle taking over the whole planet and everything being made holy, where you would have some people who were 
made holy by the, the get-in goat to be brought into that tabernacle, but those that refused that God would make things holy by others being the get-out goat. You know, God will make everything holy by separating wheat from tares, sheep from goats, delivering and destroying. You see both sides of his salvation plan continuing to be taught throughout Scripture here. And here in this section, what God provides to be holy is his holy law. God gives his law, which is what we're focused on here. And this section of Scripture is often referred to as the, where we find the law of retribution, or if you've heard the Latin term lex talionis, well, that's what it means, law of retribution. That's the translation of that. Last, last week, I commended the MacArthur Study Bible to you. This week, I will commend to you the ESV Study Bible. In the back of the ESV Study Bible is a section of articles on biblical ethics, and there's a section on understanding civil government in relation to the Noahic covenant where it talks about this law of retribution because this wasn't a new law. This was something that was already established in Genesis chapter 9 where God, it said, because man has been made in God's image, if you take a life, you give a life. There's going to be just retribution. So we see this law wasn't something that was founded and unique to the Mosaic Covenant. It was founded in God's creation order. And you say it's a transcendental law that didn't come into existence at the Mosaic Covenant, but it's always been part of God's creation and remains so even today. And in... The ESV Study Bible, page 2552. It says, you know, this passage in Genesis, looking back at how this connects to Genesis 9, explains what is wrong with murdering a human being and why the punishment for intentional murder should be execution. Because human beings are made in the image of God. The severity of the crime dictates the severity of the punishment. This is consistent with an overarching principle known as lex talionis, also known as the law of retribution. In Exodus 21, there's an example. It says, if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. In contrast to the malicious practices of the nation surrounding God's people, the Lex Talionis was a civilizing influence in three ways. Which here's the three ways that are laid out. You're like, well, I don't know how civil that sounds exactly. You know, eye for eye. But I think that's, we uh, perhaps misunderstand or misread that, which I'll explain that. The first thing that this law would do is it would prevent private vengeance which you see Jesus, when he rightly interpreted this law, he makes that point. This is in Matthew 5, 38. If you want to turn there with me, Matthew 5, 38. 
Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. So he's going back and correcting a rabbinic misunderstanding, misinterpretation of this law. He's saying, you know, I never taught you personal vengeance. Uh, he says that was something that was given to the national government of Israel. There was a corporate body that would come together to make this sort of decision and seek to carry out a just punishment. It wasn't something that a, a vigilante individual would do for themselves. And so in this way, what Jesus taught was patient suffering rather than personal revenge. But what about the governing ministry that God would place over a people to be the sword bearer, to be the one who inherits the ministry of capital punishment, who would bear the sword for him? Well, this law prevented excessive punishment. You, know, you wouldn't over-punish somebody unjustly, but there was to be uh, equal punishment. So, this, this doesn't mean, you know, some guy blinds one other guy and so the, the right punishment is to gouge out the other guy's eyes. That isn't the point, but the point is that the punishment is to be equal and to also protect the manslayer, which you see that in God set up cities of refuge for the manslayer. Sometimes it was by accident, sometimes it was on purpose. And we also see that capital punishment isn't always carried out in every case because there's this concept of ransom within the law also. So just because somebody murdered somebody didn't mean that they necessarily had to be stoned, but they could be ransomed somehow. Somebody could pay a price for them. Somebody could be a substitute for them to show that God provides ransom for criminals even like that also. So you can see in working through these issues, they're not simple. They're very complex. There's a lot of things that would have to come together where uh, those who were to uphold God's law have to consider many factors because with this law, it doesn't explain every single case that you could possibly encounter and what to do with every single one. You just get certain principles that you're to put in practice and make the best decision possible. If it were not that way, the Bible would be ginormous. Another thing that this law of retribution would do, the lex talionis principle, would it would prevent insufficient punishment. You can think about when somebody's underpunished, then what happens in a society? Yeah, lawlessness. You teach values to people through the laws that you have in your society. And you say, yeah, it's not that big of a deal to commit that crime. People are like, let's do it then. Yeah, it, it doesn't restrain the heart of man, but it, it teaches him that it's okay to do those things. There's not a, a, an equal retribution for it on the other side, and it exasperates the, the people. 
So in this way, there wouldn't be partiality shown to anyone and there would be a protection of righteousness within a society, which is the idea of clean again, which is the idea of restored order in God's creation, something that reflects what God's new creation is going to be like. It's going to be ordered under his law. Coming back to that concept of the national government of Israel, they're not given you know, every exhaustive detail, but this instance of this boy goes down as case law. You know, here's a case to study so that you can make decisions in the future on how you understand these things. And you see here that God's goal was always to apply the spirit of the law rather than the letter because he didn't give them the letter on exactly what to do. He gave them rather the, the spirit and how to understand it, which again would be paired with this concept of ransoming as well. But it taught them, you know, the, the spirit is upholding the name of Yahweh by loving their neighbor as themselves in every court case in which, you know, governing entities today know this. It's written on their hearts that they're to be the ones who uphold the love your neighbor laws, which is why you hear them saying that a lot. Like, well, why are you making this decision that you're making, vice president? Because you're to love your neighbor as yourself, but I define how you love your neighbor as yourself, not God's word. That's the problem. So we shouldn't just think, oh, they said love your neighbor as yourself. Clearly we're supposed to do that, so I have to listen to them. But we're going to say, is that how God defined it? Is that what he wants us to do in loving our neighbor? And can we go back to, to scripture and say, well, actually the principle he wants us to apply is this thing, and so we think the best decision is this. Uh, I heard this in a video with a person who, who claims to be a transsexual and saying that they were also a Christian and that you know, all those other Christians just got it long, wrong because they don't understand that this man who said that we, she was a, she said he was made in the image of God in her image she was made, which by the way, God gets to pick his own pronouns, not you. But then this, this man went on to say, Christians are supposed to love their neighbor as themselves. You see, there's this influence that this group wants to have on the government entity that's to hold up loving your neighbor as yourself and is telling them to do their job by using the right words, love your neighbor as yourself, but the wrong practice. It's a redefinition of what God has commanded. It's a distortion. Israel was to have an absolute e equity in every decision, which again, that's kind of a buzzword today, which is defined different than how it's defined in scripture. So don't, don't, don't let people take our words. You know, e equity is God's word and it gets God's definition and people can't take that word and mess it up. Even while the Tower of Babel is being rebuilt, 
and the whole planet becoming that. We don't need to be confused about what people are, are talking about, but we want to make sure that we use you know, God's words and concepts with God's definition and seek to be discerning. In the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology on commenting on this, it says, at one level, equity overrode both national and social discrimination. But at a deeper level, it demanded an absolute equivalence between crime and punishment. So you see, as we read through this, he says, this is not just the law for Israel, but also for the sojourner. It's for everybody. And uh, Israel is a reflection to what every other nation is to be governed by. They're, they're to have the same light and bread and name as us. You know, it wasn't something that was unique to them only, but they were meant to be a, a teaching tool to the nations on honoring God's name and obeying his law. And to do that with having a, an equivalence between crime and punishment. Coming back to the idea of the death penalty not always being en enacted where it sounds like it should be required. One example of that is found in Exodus 21 that I wanted to read to you where you hear this idea of ransom and redemption. This is from Exodus 21 starting in verse 26. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and ruins it, he shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. And if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it and it puts a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So you see in considering God's law, it doesn't say, well, if a man strikes out the eye, then you have to strike out his, his eye. But rather what it turns into is, well, now that man loses his slave. He, he has a lot to lose in this, which is having you know, somebody perhaps working on his farm or something like that. So in this way, it would restrain him. He said, man, if I make him lose my, his eye, then I lose a worker and he gets to go free. So it ends up doing equal harm to him where one guy, you know, loses work, he also loses work. That's like, well, what about, you know, the issue with, you know, the ox goring somebody and having the habit of that? Well, even in that case, it doesn't, the only answer isn't capital punishment, but the other people will say, we want a ransom. And so they demand a, a ransom payment rather than his life. Say, well, that, that's equitable and that's fair, and they have to figure out, you know, what that amount is going to be. It doesn't tell you what it is right here, but you can see that it would take much wisdom for people in governmental leadership to go back to God's law and see, you know, what principle has he given us so we can determine the proper practice that would uphold his standard 
and show something of a picture of restoration to holy order in the world. Now, when it comes to studying and understanding God's law in the scripture, this is one of those things that uh, is known to be one of the most complicated things in all of theology to study, one of those things that uh, people have debated and written lots of books. And the books they write happen to just be ginormous. I haven't found one that's under 600 pages on this topic. So it's taken a while to study it in depth. But a simple way to you know, interpret and try to make sense of these is to think about the principle and the practice. You know, there's a principle which God has taught that transcends all of creation but there's different practices of it throughout the ages. There were specific practices that were done in Israel under the administration of Moses that are different than the practices under the law of Christ. Later on, when the Mosaic administration is no more and we're the, under the administration of Christ, but the none of the principles go away. All of the the principles that God has built in cre creation of justice and law remain, but the practice of how they're applied looks different. So the principle's the same, the practice is different. So when we read something like this, we want to discern what's the principle that God taught and then determine what's the just practice to have in the time in which we live Well, really interesting topic, to be sure, and I'm restraining myself from saying everything that pops into my head about it, but I, I do intend to elaborate on it on another day, Lord willing, in the summer. <laughs> uh, any, any questions at this point in thinking through you know, God, God's provision to be holy in community? You see what he's given light that lights you know, the way to him, bread that brings you into fellowship at his table, and it's all centered around his name being honored. And there's some that can come to that table and some that are cut off forever. And so God is going to uphold his justice in carrying out this salvation package of light, bread, and his name. You have a burning question, I can see. <laughs> Yeah, there's the restraint uh, of his law that he'll uphold. You see around those passages, like in the section of Romans 12 to 14, where it's talking about, you know, how do you live at peace with all, all men? And in chapter 13, it talks about uh, the, the government is 
well, civil government, I should say, God is the government, ultimately, but then civil government under that is to uphold the ministry of the sword, which, you know, Peter adds in uh, praising what is good, punishing what is evil, but it's not by their standard. They don't get to make the standard. God sets the standard. So it's like, well, what if they don't uphold that? Can I take eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? It's like, well, the law of retribution helps us to understand I can't take personal vengeance against them, but this comes into, you know, in understanding any civil government, they, they work in a lot of different ways. And ultimately, they're, while uh, a government can be structured in a lot of different ways, uh, it, it must be held to the standard of God's law. They should be seeking to know that and uphold that, but what if they don't? Well, what is also brought up in that context, Romans 12 to 14, is vengeance is the Lord's. You know, he's going to take care of that. He's going to make that right. And so you see with when God's servants sin, he's the one who brings judgment. So one, you see that with Nadab and Abihu. When the priesthood sins, nobody in the community executes them. God does it on his own. So you see the priesthood was called God's servant. You know, civil authorities also called God's servant. You know, the community isn't to execute them. God will do that which is exactly what you read about in Revelation. You know, the governments who uh, refuse to love God and his law and to uphold it, he brings vengeance on them. He does that. And then this unique case with uh, the blaspheming boy, you see that, you know, one in the community that is, you know, stoned by the community isn't one who was, you know, in the priesthood or a governing authority, if you want, you know, use a more general term. Yeah. Yeah, so they took those concepts of principle and practice, but they, they equated their chosen practice to being the principle for everybody. And that way they, they became a, a law unto themselves. Well, that's a little more complicated, I think. But that, you know, the, the concept of, you know, lesser magistrates, if you're thinking of it in terms of levels of civil government, it, it applies. So, you know, you would look at, you know, like a federal government moving down to something like the police. It's like, well, who, who has the sword in the ministry of the sword? Well, the police do. So in that case where they might be seen as uh, lesser than the federal government that's over them, they're the ones who have the ministry of the sword that's to protect the people. So if, you know, federal entity, this happened in Venezuela, if I remember right, but uh, the government was using military force 
against the people, and the people were protesting that. But what happened was the, the police came in and stood between them to protect the people from the other governing authorities, right? And so that, that would be an enactment of a, a, a right understanding and application of the doctrine of lesser magistrates. But if you consider, you think about the magistrates as being you know, civil government, then church government, and family government, where it gets misapplied is if you think, oh, well, civil government's misusing the sword, so the church gets the sword. We become the military, and we have to come. And if the church won't do it, I'll do it personally. Right. And that's where, you know, understanding the law of retribution that it protects from personal vengeance helps you to know that, you know, coming to that conclusion is wrong. <laughs> There's something off in that thinking there. So the way that some people are presenting the doctrine of lesser magistrates is different than how it was taught by like John Knox or uh, some of the Lutheran people who are trying to figure out the, who wrote uh, the, the Modberg Confession because they were recognizing uh, the government's going to kill us for being Christians. And we also understand this concept that that God gives us the, the permission to protect our families. And so we, they were trying to wrestle with, well, what if they come to kill my family? Uh, what's the thing to do when I, how, how do I honor the Lord in that situation? Do I, do I just let them do it and do nothing? Or do I lay down my life for my family? Which the thing is, they never actually, and you know, sitting down to, to write out that, that statement to help them think it through, one of the, the good things that happened to them was they never actually had to carry it out in the end. But you know, see, it's, it's something good to, to think through because you, you want to, to think through things like that ahead of time because otherwise you're not going to do anything or you're just going to do what you know and what you know might be the wrong thing. So definitely a really good topic, really long topic, gets into... Uh, just war theory and all sorts of things and some stuff that happened in history, which is really interesting to read about. And it's rare to find any, any two people that agree on how to understand and apply these things, especially, especially during the Reformation time. I had one book that was uh, just go, going through and catalog, cataloging the different ways that the church understood their relationship to the church during the time of the Reformation. It's like, well, how did this guy think about it, and this guy think about it, and this guy think about it, and it listed out. I, I, I came up with over 30 different combinations of views and how they would piece these things together, and then I felt very tired. <laughs> and it's like, this, this is gonna be hard to figure out, I think. But uh, there's also something about you know, spending time and studying God's word where a lot of this is clarified. You know, just because men throughout history have been confused on it doesn't mean that God's word is unclear, but it does mean that sometimes it, it's difficult to figure it out. And part of the difficulty is that it, it can apply different at different times in history. So there's a lot to, to work out in, in our own minds, and we're, we're of need to do that today. 
which by today I mean in this time and not this very moment on this day, which is why we're going to come back to that, that topic in the summer. I think I have two weeks set aside for talking about church and state. So any, any questions you, you have on that, if you send them to me, it'll help me in my, my preparation so I can focus on trying to bring biblical clarity to the sort of things that you might be thinking about. Well, as we see in Leviticus 24, to bring all this to a conclusion, that God desires that we be holy in community. And God brings about that holiness through providing light, mainly the light of Christ who shows us the way to tabernacling with God. And he provides that we be made holy by Jesus being the, pre- the bread from heaven who brings us into fellowship with God as that Christ is our justification and sanctification. He makes us right with the righteous God to live righteous with God. He is the way to God and the walk with God, and we're saved by his name to walk as a representation of his name. And as his lights, we gather as his lampstand, the church, to honor his name in word and deed with the fear of God in our hearts. Like what Puritan Thomas Watson said about this, he said, if God justify a man, who shall condemn him? But if God condemn him, who shall justify him? If God lay a man in prison, where shall he get bail or main prize? God will take his full blow at the sinner in hell. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we saw here those who reject God's atonement, they'll, there will be a just retribution for cursing his name. There isn't a neutral position that you can take toward God. You either bless him or curse him, and he'll either bless you or curse you. The light of God's character is revealed through his law, and he will be treated as holy. As we talked about just judgments are to be carried out by any national government at any time in history as a way to reflect as God's servants, God's kingdom goal of restoring his holy order to the world by his word being the standard. So God's provision for walking in holiness in community is light and bread so that we honor his name and word and deed in accordance with his law. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you that you are the light and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have lit the path to access to being in fellowship with the entire Trinity, with Father, Son, and Spirit by your blood, by you being our high priest and by you being our sacrifice and by you being bread from heaven and that you're also the one who empowers us by your grace to live by your name that we would represent you in the way that we speak, in the way that we live, and that we would live by the standard of your law instruction so that your character and glory would be seen through us, that we would be your witnesses in the world, that others would see the light of Christ. So we pray that that would happen even this day, that you would open blind eyes in our fellowship to see you and open deaf ears to hear your word and to believe in you and to follow you who is the way, the truth, and the life, the one who came to tabernacle among us that we might be able to tabernacle in you 
is the light of all things. Amen.